Teachers are leaders. And we're here to emphasize the good in education, one practice, method, idea, or trend at a time. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Teachers Are Leaders podcast brought to you by the Warren Instructional Network, and I'm your host, Andrea Coachman. Okay, we are back for another episode, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Robin Griffith. Robin, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Yes, well, I'm excited. Um, Obviously, like always, I just want to jump right in, but so for everybody who is not lucky enough like me to know, to really know you just a little bit about your background and what you've done over the years. So you have been in education for over 25 years, which is a huge feat. Um, I was starting in the classroom, teaching those primary grades, kinder first reading recovery, and then training um, literacy coaches. And then moving into being a literacy coach, being a staff developer, and then currently um, you are a professor of literacy education in the College of Education at TCU. Go Frogs. Yeah, um, go Frogs. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I, I feel like I can't say a college without saying the mascot. Um, but working with teach, teachers, students who are going to become teachers, which... I think is awesome. So molding, molding those minds, but continuing to serve in classrooms. So, and I know we were talking a little bit earlier, you make it a point to get into classrooms every, every semester, right? Is that what you were saying? That's right. I can't do my job without being connected to the classroom. So not only does it help me stay current, but it makes me stay real I yes. <laughs> when I spend uh, the day in a kindergarten classroom. One day I went in and videotaped myself teaching a small group guided reading lesson when they had a substitute teacher oh and they had a thunderstorm. And I thought this is oh, humbling no. and this is so real. And I'm so glad I do this because it keeps me relevant. Yeah. It keeps me humble and it keeps me connected to the field. And it also just reminds me why I do what I do. Oh. Yes. I love that. Well, how awesome that you can do both. I think that is super uh, awesome for your, for your students. They're like, this is it. I'm telling you real life, what it looks like when you go out there. Awesome. And you recently within the last year, has it been over a year since your book has been published? Yes. It came out in 2022. So yeah, about a year and a half. Awesome. Yes. So Teachers as decision makers, responsive guided reading instruction. Yes. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It was quite the journey to get that book in print, but I'm really proud of the work and so um, thankful for the teachers that let me learn from them as we, as I, I really tried to understand what is it that makes you such a powerful teacher? And it really came down to teachers who were mindful of the decisions that they were making in small group instruction, in literacy instruction, in whatever instruction, they just had a framework essentially that they were using to guide their decisions. And that was what I unpacked in that book. And I'm really proud of that work. Yes. My gosh, that is powerful. Even just that framework to guide Mm -hmm. decision is powerful. That's awesome. Okay. This is the hardest, the hardest part of this. Can you, before we get into the, the real big why behind why we're, you know, here having a conversation, 
Can you think of, of all of your experience and all of the things you've done, a favorite memory, something that sticks with you and stands the test of time? Yeah, I can. And it, it comes from my work in a, in my kindergarten classroom. And I had two little girls that were very young for their age. Mm -hmm. One of them was named Amanda. How many A's are in Amanda? A lot. (laughs) And I remember my little friend, Amanda, we were working on letter identification. We were working on writing her name. Uh, We had name puzzles. We were doing shared reading. We were finding um, letters in big books. We were just doing so much work around letter identification. And I promise you, it was November maybe. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Amanda said to me, there's my A. And it was, you know, the light bulb moment. It was as Ah. if I could see the light bulb. Actually, I think she said, there's my letter. And I said, yeah. And she said, and there it is. And there it is. And there it is. It's like, she finally got it. That that letter was consistent. And that was the capital A and the lowercase A. I, I just thought it was so brilliant to see that light bulb moment for that little girl who was struggling so mightily to take on letters and um, letter identification. It was powerful. Oh, that is, that gave me goosebumps. I love that. (laughs) But I think, you know, with Blaze, our son, and he's in kindergarten, but seeing some of those light bulbs and like when he now recognized Mm -hmm. the letter, he's like, hey, that's a B. Like it is, like it is such a cool thing to be able to experience Mm-hmm. that learning, like that foundational beginning of learning how to read and then how to write, like, Ooh, it's a lot. It's awesome. Yeah. And it's so powerful to yes. get I could be wrong in this assumption, but I feel like, you know, your work in the classroom and then your work, you know, with going to be teachers and then with the teachers that you work, you know, I feel like it makes, it makes a lot of sense with your book, like with teachers as decision makers and moving that direction. But I mean, you know, what is it that got you to a point where it was more than just, Hey, this is the work I'm doing. I'm doing it, you know, Mm -hmm. every day in my classroom, I'm doing it in like with the districts that I support, but like, I need to put this in a book. Like, yeah. And that's a big, that's a really big and broad question, but like, (laughs) no, but I actually know how it did come about. I actually was working with colleagues um, at another institution and they were looking at thoughtfully adaptive teaching. And when does a teacher abandon their plan um, in the moment? Mm -hmm. And I was interested in that, but I said, I actually want, really want to look at why does a teacher make the decisions that she makes or he makes um, in that moment? So I really got to thinking about There are two types of decisions. I think there's planning decisions. So you make decisions as you plan your instruction. Mm -hmm. What books am I going to read? How am I going? What's the procedure? What's the order? What materials? How am I going to engage the learners? The I do, we do, you do. For sure. And then there's in the moment decisions. And those were the ones that fascinated me because you can have a great plan, but if you cannot adapt instruction on the fly based upon what your students are doing and the goals that you have, then you miss opportunities. So it was those in the moment decisions that fascinated me. So I really didn't know. I didn't have a framework um, in mind, but what I did is I spent time with teachers and I asked thousands of questions and I watched lots of video of them teaching and I did a lot of debriefing with them and I just tried to get inside their heads. And then it started to become clear to me 
that the teachers who knew their students the best, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that this student needs more one-on-one -on -one attention. I'm, I'm talking about, did they know what their students knew? Mm -hmm. And they had a, so they know their students well, and they knew where they were headed with every student. So they had a really clear set of goals in mind. And then from there, they adapted their instruction. So I, I think of my um, teacher decision-making framework as the learner, the goal, and the text. And the text could be context. So um, everything starts with knowing the learner mm -hmm. and knowing where you're headed with the learner. Okay. So I think of that. Um, it's really powerful to think first about strengths. Mm -hmm. And that comes from my uh, long work <laughs> in reading recovery and Mari Clay's work, just to see strengths first. And the, the thing I like to say to teachers, pre-service and in-service, I say, when you see strengths first, you see possibilities for growth. But if you focus only on their needs or their weaknesses, you see them as problems to be solved. Mm -hmm. And when we when we adopt a strengths-based perspective, we can say it, it, it shapes how we teach yeah. because we see them as opportunities to help them become amazing literate individuals. Yeah. But if we see them as only their weaknesses, then we treat them and we begin to identify them <laughs> as children with special needs or children right. with deficits and they're not deficits. They just, they just need more opportunities and different kinds of opportunities. So that really frames all the work that I do. Um, that's how I approach my my instructions to see strengths first and see the the learners first. Yes, I love that. Well, and you you know, at the end of the day, the kiddos in your class, obviously, like you know, if I'm a kindergarten teacher, I'm working to make sure that they're ready for first grade when they leave me, and yes. and so on and so forth. But we're, we're all still people. And, you know, thinking through, I like what you said about, they just need more opportunities or different kinds of opportunities. And so how then are we as teachers giving them those different kinds of opportunities and those more multiple opportunities? Cause you know, what it takes me one time to get might take, you know, somebody else three times to get. Oh, right. That's a lot. Yeah. So we can't, I believe we can't do everything whole group. No, I believe there has to be some direct explicit instruction that everyone gets in sure. whole group. But then there also have to be opportunities for teachers to work in small groups and maybe in one-on-one -on -one settings to differentiate instruction. So yeah. if you think about the science of teaching reading and those research-based instructional strategies, yeah. this idea that they are data-informed so that data informed is what do my learners know? Yes. What are my assessments that I'm gathering? Whatever it might be, how am I using data to inform my instruction? So yes. um, that has to be there. Right. And then explicit and systematic. So you have to make sure that on top of that direct instruction, let's say of a phonics or foundational skill, it has to be applied then into context or into real text. I, I think that transfer has to be there. Yes. And then that differentiation can't happen to the level that it needs to happen only in whole group. No. So I actually did a study of teachers um, and I asked them to identify when they made an instructional decision. And I observed them in all different kinds of contexts. 
And they identified fewer instructional decisions when they taught whole group. That makes sense. Yeah, they weren't, they couldn't be responsive to 22 kids. Right. Like they could in a small group. Right. And so that was really telling to me that the, the data showed that they weren't making as many instructional decisions in the moment. Mm -hmm. And they weren't being as responsive to the learners in front of them when they were only teaching whole group. Ah. Wow. So that makes me think about the power of a small group context like guided reading. Absolutely. It it gives teachers an opportunity to tailor the instruction to the needs and strengths of those learners in front of them by making deliberate decisions about text selection, deliberate decisions about what am I focusing on in this small group lesson? Mm -hmm. I know when I first started doing guided reading, it was about teaching a book. Right. But it's not. (laughs) Guided reading is not about teaching a book. It's about teaching a learner in front of you. And so then I started unpacking this idea of, am I focusing on decoding? Because that's a skill that some of the readers might need. Am I focusing on comprehension? Or am I focusing on fluency? And while a reader has to integrate all of those seamlessly to read text um, accurately and with good comprehension, with good expression and and prosody, there might be an area that a reader or a group of readers needs more direct intentional focus on for certain parts of guided reading lessons. So I begin to ask teachers to think about what is it that this group of students are doing well in decoding, fluency expression, and comprehension. And then what is an area of need for them in one of those contexts? So if I'm working on um, thinking about supporting a summary with text evidence, that's an area of comprehension, right? So I can ask the learners, today when we're reading this book, I want you to really be paying attention to how this character Um, is thinking about solving their problem. And I want you to find the place in the text where they come up with a possible solution. I'm just making that up off the fly, which is where I'm going, right? So it's not just, I'm going to pull a small group of readers together. I'm going to give them a level text. It's way more complex than that. If we're doing small group instruction and or guided reading really well. Well, when did answer there? No, but it was... (laughs) It was perfect. And I feel like sometimes, well, so, you know, one of the things that we're focusing on this year is, is the power in and, and how it's not about picking and choosing this or that it's about how do we do all of the things that we need? And I feel like sometimes the idea of guided reading or, or bigger, bigger umbrella, the idea of small groups gets, to where it's like you're having to choose either you're doing whole group instruction or you're doing small group. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the work that you've done and what we're talking about is there's a place for whole group instruction. You absolutely have to teach all of your kids certain specific things, Mm -hmm. but based on my kiddos strengths and then based on their areas of need, I need to utilize small groups to then help fill fill the gaps, you know, if they're, if you have those students who are above grade level, then how are you continuing to push them? But I cannot do that. If I'm only teaching in a whole group setting, I'm going to leave somebody behind somewhere. Right. And how will you know 
if you don't ever meet with them in small group, because there are so many kids that are great at flying under the radar. Yes. Um, and there are so many kids that you, you maybe know they're not getting it, but if you never stop to walk, to talk with them or observe them, how can you ever figure out where it is going awry? So I think this idea of carefully observing your students, engaging in the work of readers. So if we're asking students to, let's say, take a a phonics principle of um, onset and rhyme, and we're asking them to use onset and rhyme or phonograms to decode novel text, then let's give them opportunities to do that. And let's watch how they do it. Let's not just give them a worksheet or... um, you know, something out of context, let's help them make that transfer then to real text. So, and I'm going to watch them do it in action. I think one of the most powerful things I coach teachers to do, and it's a teaching decision is to wait. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I might be working with a learner and it is so tempting to just supply the answer or tell them how to fix it. And we know that as parents, (laughs) that sometimes it's so tempting to just do it for them, but we're not teaching for independence. For one thing, we are teaching for dependence when we're always stepping in to solve the problem for them. But we also, if we're not ever waiting, we're never giving the learner a chance to show us what they can do. So waiting is such a powerful decision. The decision to wait is a decision. And when you wait, you observe. And when you observe, you learn what they're doing and what they're not yet doing. Wow. That's powerful. (laughs) I think it is too. And that's what keeps me going. Yes. Well, I could see why. I mean, but I love that. I mean, I think, you know, of teachers in the classroom and, and especially now, I mean, I do feel like, you know, after, after COVID and kiddos coming back, like they're there are gaps and there are bigger gaps. And and Mm -hmm. in addition to just students coming in, like, you know, you come in teaching, well, especially kindergarten, you come in and it's like, you have kids who already know all of the, all of their letters. You have kids that are starting to recognize sight words. And then you have kids that don't know a single letter. And so it's like, if you just teach them all at one time, you're not going to know what they know or don't know. It's you're just guessing. You're not making those informed decisions based on the data it's kind of like a scatter shoot you're just throwing it out there and hoping it sticks (laughs) yes and I think when you um are aware of what your students are bringing to what understandings they are bringing you can continue to challenge the children who already know a lot of the content and then you can also be really deliberate about addressing any gaps in instruction or yes. gaps in understanding, I should say, really, um, for the learners who are still making the progress, who are developing those proficiencies. Yes. Um, one of the teachers that I've worked with, I, I know lots of people say this, but every child deserves to make a year's worth of growth. Yes. So if you have a child who is already in um, first grade reading on a second grade level, they should still be making a year's worth of growth. Right. So we they are entitled to the, yeah, they are entitled to the same high quality instruction that a child who's reading a year below grade level is getting. So small group instruction allows us to continue to address the needs of all of our children in our classroom. You know, I think back 
to when I was in a classroom, in a high school classroom. It was very easy, like you said, for kids to fly under the radar if all I did was teach my whole group lesson. Like, listen, I taught it. You should learn it. Like, you get it mm-hmm. or you don't. But then that's the easy part on the, uh, for the teacher, for me, too. That was when it was easy. Like, yeah. the hard part is, okay, here was my whole group lesson, but now here's what I know. This kid, oh, my, they got it. Like, mm-hmm. we need we need to have separate conversations and I need to push them more. Yeah. Kiddos, not so much. So then bringing them in and having those conversations, but that's, that is what's hard and that is what's difficult. And I feel like, you know, you mentioned like your, the framework of, you know, get like, so we talked the learner, the goal and the text, but then getting, you know, knowing the student, getting to know the student, but then knowing where you're going. And I think that that's the part that can stump some people. Like, how do yeah. we, how do we do that? Like, what, how do we decide what the goals are? How do we, you know, work to get to know what, what our kiddos know or don't know? What are their strengths? Sure. Well, a lot of it's going to be guided by our state standards, right? For sure. So mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, the TEKS, and really thinking about what do first graders need to know as foundational skills? Um. But more than that, or in addition to that, it's also knowing the order in which they take on that understanding mm-hmm. too. So you're pairing those decoding, you know, those um, CVC patterns and co- the vowel consonant E patterns and those um, phonics pieces of knowledge, different ways to spell the long A sound, like all of those foundational understandings about uh, print and how uh, letters work together to make sounds and how sounds work together to write words. But then, but that's not all you're yeah, doing. No. You're also <laughs> thinking about expression and you're also thinking about comprehension and all of those things have to work together when you are reading as a proficient reader. Right. So if we don't ever give children opportunities for that integration then we help, we set them up for failure right. if we only do it in compartmentalized ways. Yes. So I, um, I think small, well, I don't think, I know yes. that small group instruction and independent reading yes. are critical. We right. cannot expect our learners, our students to make enough progress if we only give them enough instructional time, whole group to read, you know, a chant together a text right with all the other kids they right. need time in text and instructional level text and texts also that are independent level that allow them to develop proficiency and um, automaticity of all those decoding fluency expression and comprehension um, competencies yes Whew. I do love that though opportunities for integration and that make that makes sense I mean if you think about how we how we learn no matter what age you are right it's like you learn it but you have to apply it I can't I can't learn how to shoot a basketball by you just telling me how to do it if I don't get the opportunity to then go do it right if the ultimate goal is to play a basketball game if you're only teaching me and I'm only just practicing right here then I'm never going to get to a point where I can be proficient in the game 
without that ability to do all of the things all of the time sure. with coming in and breaking it down. Like yeah. I have to I have to put it in terms I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thinking about just taking that basketball analogy a little bit further, um, you know, the act of shooting is one thing, right? The mechanics. And the feel and the touch of the ball and the fingertips and the feel and the distance perception that a that a shooter has to have in terms of how much how much energy do I have to bring from my legs all the way from my toes all the way up to my wrist flick right, but then it's also even more than that because it's the the demand of the game so the demand of the text so if I'm playing against my sisters who are super competitive I know I have to bring a different kind of skill set than if I were playing against um some second graders on the playground. Right. Yes. So the demand, and I think about that, the demand of the game yeah. and the demand of the text. So mm-hmm. if you're going to ask me to read a doctoral dissertation, I have to bring a different set of skills than if I'm going to read um just a Colleen Hoover book, right? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so uh yes. And, and that's what I'm doing as a proficient adult reader. And that's what we should give our students opportunities to do too. Reading a wide variety of genres and a wide variety of um, topics so that they can continue to build their background knowledge. I'm reading, I just finished reading The Covenant of Water, which was like a 700 page book. <laughs> it was set in India all the way from the 1930s all the way to the 1980s. And there was so much that I didn't know and there's so much background knowledge that I did not possess that I had to continually go and look at, well, what is that word? What is that word? What, is that? what was that? What was that context? What, what part of India was that? What are the culture norms that I'm not understanding as I'm reading this text? And that was a very demanding text for me, sure. even though it was written for adults, right? So it was written for people like me, but it was way more demanding than a than a text that I brought a lot of background knowledge to. Yeah. But because you know how to do those things and how, you know, know how to access the text because of the skills and strategies that you developed learning how to read. Yes. Able to do that and get through it. Yeah. I recommend it. Yes. I love that. Well, I love that too. I love a good book recommendation as well as (laughs) relating to the topic. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Oh my gosh. Well, we could um, for sure talk about this for days. I know that. Um, But keeping it pointed and focusing on one thing and thinking about, you know, teachers, what can they do with this information? How can they take, you know, what we talked about today and apply it into their classroom or, you know, coaches, like apply it, give it to their teachers kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, the way I think about this, um, teacher teachers as decision makers, is I'm in, I want teachers to be empowered to make instructional decisions, no matter what curriculum they are handed. Yes, because you can. <laughs> sure, I don't care if it's a scripted um, lesson plan or not. You will be making instructional decisions, and it's um, very empowering, I think, for for teachers to adopt that stance. So even if I have been handed a curriculum, you still are the expert because you're the expert of the children in front of you. You're the expert of where you're headed and you're the expert of being able to use those instructional materials in powerful ways. So, um, so look at the curriculum, but look at the learners in front of you. So no matter what context you're in, I think you need to observe 
and know the learners. And so one of, if you have um, informal assessments, which are part of your district's curriculum, use those to guide you, but also just spend time with your learners, have conversations with them, talk with them about the books they're reading, watch them read, um, prompt them to um, tell you what they're, what have you read so far? What are you understanding so far? What questions do you have? I think some of the most powerful data that we can gather is directly from the mouths of the learners that we're teaching. So if we pay attention to that, then we can say, ah, I'm starting to see what our strengths for this learner. And I'm also starting to see opportunities where I can take them, take the next step with them. So know the learner and then know where you're headed with all of the learners. And it might mean that you have to speak with colleagues who've taught maybe lower level tech, lower level students, um, grade levels, or teachers maybe who've taught higher level students. So if I were a fifth grade teacher, Andrea, I would be talking to you about what would I, what would you be expecting kids coming from a junior high middle school curriculum into your high school context? What would you, what's the vision of where should they be? And then I would be working backwards to figure out what are some of the things that I can do to challenge my learners who who are above grade level. Sure. So the standards and knowing the goals that you have for the learners is something that all of us can embrace. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I do think, I mean, at least in the state of Texas, we are fortunate that our standards, a lot of them go all the way up. Yes. Way down, you know, so being able to look at and kind of see the progression of if a student is supposed to be able to, you know, what write a simple sentence in this grade, then when, like, what goes from that compound complex, you know, whatever. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. The way the teaks are vertically aligned is a powerful. Yes, it is. It is awesome. It is awesome. Oh my gosh. Robin, thank you. Thank Thank you, Andrea. No, thank you for your time and your knowledge. Like I think it can be very overwhelming to be, you know, a teacher in, in a classroom and, you know, it's hard when you think about everything you have to do and everything you have to accomplish. But I, I really think that, you know, like you said, like, get to know your students and know where they're headed. If I can do those two things mm-hmm. then I can put myself in a position to where I can make the decisions that they need to then grow them in my class. So I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just, I do think this idea of taking back the power a bit for ourselves as professionals is, okay. is validating and empowering and might help with some of the overwhelming feelings that sometimes teachers might feel put upon when they actually say, no, I recognize that I'm the expert for this group of students in my classroom. And y'all, you talk about teachers as leaders at Warren Instructional Network. And I like to think about teachers as leaders and decision makers. Yes. (laughs) Hey, I love it. Let's, let's add it to the tagline. Okay. (laughs) And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Teachers Are Leaders. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. We are, you know, wherever you find your podcast. And if you're looking for us outside of the podcast world, we are on Twitter at WarrenINPD. And our website is WarrenINPD.com. Hope to see you soon. Thanks.